Hello and welcome back to This Is Our Design Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series, currently on NBC and based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. My co-host is Kate Kolzik, TV editor at soundonsight.org and writer at theavclub.com. I'm Sean Coletti and our guest this week is also a critic from the AV Club and Sound On Sight, in addition to being a co-host for Under the Hood, Sound On Sight's Banshee podcast. We're very happy to welcome back Les Chapel. Thank you for joining us. Hello. It's been a eventful little weekend. There's been uh, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff and a lot of birthday partying, but now it's all yeah. sadly over. Happy birthday to Sean. Everybody, it's Sean's <laughs> birthday. Very, very exciting. <laughs> and I guess it was also Brian Fuller's birthday. Was it today or yesterday? Something, yeah. Something like that. Fuller, I don't think he's a cancer, but uh, he's he's a Leo, so he's he's July. He's sticking in there. Well, mm. we still like him a little bit. Uh, a couple <laughs> housekeeping Happy birthday things. to our favorite evil genius. Yeah, absolutely. A couple housekeeping things up at the top before we get going. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact with contact with us, feel free to do so via email at this is our design six 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 at gmail dot com or on Twitter, or uh, leave a post over at soundonsite.org when the the thread for this goes up. You can also leave a rating for the podcast on iTunes. We really appreciate that. And just in the spirit of the birthdayness, uh, we're going to do another giveaway, this time for a copy of the book, The Art of Making Hannibal, which is very exciting. So if you're all interested in being in the running for that, uh I can't just say email in now that Kate has made stipulations in the past. What should we make them do this time? Um, well, in keeping with the, the book, how about are the have people... Because I love when they send us gifts because they're hilarious and awesome. Um, but I feel like for this, it should be like like your favorite piece of set design or something like that. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, give us, uh, we've got the gifts, which always have really hilarious captions. Just uh, give us an image from Hannibal that really affects you in a powerful way. And that could be one of many emotions. But uh, there are a lot of really striking visual images in this series, of course. And so just just throw it our way. And who knows, maybe that image that you send us is even in the art of making Hannibal. I actually don't have a copy, so you'll be getting it before I do, lucky listener. I actually, the, I do have a copy of it, and it's amazing. There you go. You now have verification that the thing you're entering for is literally amazing. Uh, so once again, you can let us know via any of those methods and uh, send us a picture. We like pictures. We like looking at things. We like listening to things. We like talking about things, especially Season 3, Episode 8, The Great Red Dragon, written by Nick and Tosca, Steve Lightfoot, and Brian Fuller, and directed by Neil fucking Marshall. <laughs> he warrants that, right? He's one of the directors that warrants that? Sure. Oh, absolutely. Okay. You know, you can, only a few people get that, and I think that, that he deserves it. So before we get into that, uh, some highlights of Hannibal by the numbers for The Great Red Dragon. Uh, there are 221 total lines across 10 speaking roles, which is actually the fewest lines in any episode this season. And also the fewest for a lead character, who is Will at 46, and then to round out the top three, Chilton and is at 33, and actually Alana and Jack are tied for third at 30. Actually, very few. The, the numbers separating a lot of the, the top, like, six, really, are, are really... There's not much of a difference. There's 23 total scenes, uh, the longest of which, I think, is something that we'll be talking about quite a bit, 
And uh, listeners can correct me if I'm wrong. I obviously didn't go back to do Hannibal by the numbers for every episode. But uh, the scene in which Will visits the Leeds home is a whopping 8 minutes and 25 seconds, which I believe is the longest scene that we've had in any episode. Um, but we'll be talking specifically about that a little bit later in the podcast. But wanted to kick things off, and usually I, I throw things right to our first guest, but uh, now that we're in Red Dragon territory, I wanted to bring up the discussion uh, of adaptation as a, a process of narrative, because this is something that I feel really strongly about, and that I have uh, many different opinions, and that I've gotten into arguments with people that I prefer not to get into arguments about, because I respect them and love them, but sometimes you have to fight. And mm-hmm. uh, this is one of those topics for me, because I'm a huge, huge fan of reading. I mean, I did all of my education in, uh, in pretty much literature and, and creative writing, and so I, I do a lot of that in addition to watching TV and stuff like that. So every one of those mediums means a lot to me, and I'm interested in them, uh, critically especially. And the point of view that I always try to defend is that when adapting uh, a piece of work, whether that's you know remaking a film into another film or, more commonly, turning a, a book or a series of books into either a TV series or a series of films, that the, the, the criticism that you often hear about it not being faithful to the source material is something that really grates me because I feel like there's no need or reason for uh, a different creator or a different artist to turn a piece of work into just the exact same thing in a different medium or to just redo it completely and for it to be the exact same work that it was in the same medium. And so that what, what I like to see is that uh, a different artist or a, a different creator, in this case, Brian Fuller, turning Thomas Harris's work into something else. He doesn't strictly adapt Thomas Harris. He interprets Thomas Harris in his own way. And if you had 10 different showrunners doing 10 different Hannibal TV series, they would all look, they would all feel different. Uh, they would all be very different products. And to me, some of the the most joy that I get out of watching this TV series over the past three years has come from seeing the different things that uh, Fuller has done to make it his own and to fit his personal aesthetic, which I know that all of us really love from his past series as well. So I feel like now that we've moved into Red Dragon proper, and you know maybe this is no longer uh, the podcast dedicated to the, the series from characters created by but now it's actually based on the novel red dragon that this is going to be a discussion that comes up and i wanted to get your thoughts on that and even though i know kate that you haven't read the novel or or seen the adaptations you're very familiar with a bunch of different adaptations game of thrones being another key one in popular culture that has been adapted and that uh, people have very strong opinions about how things are adapted and what being faithful to the source material really means so uh, with that, um, we'll go to Les first. And uh, any thoughts on that or response to that? Well, I think that's a very interesting way to look at adaptations. And that is more the way that I tend to look at them as well. I'm not, my, my viewpoint on when you're adapting uh, material is always if you can do it faithfully and you do it very well, that's fantastic. But I'm always more interested in what you're able to to make out of the adaptation as opposed to if, if you're doing something just a straightforward shot by uh, point by point, it's not as interesting. 
Uh, something I can point to is actually uh, the David Cronenberg Naked Lunch movie, which is much less a straightforward adaptation of Naked Lunch as it is sort of an interesting pastiche of other William S. Burroughs material and William S. Burroughs life. And it's really, really fascinating in that regard because you're looking at it not just as a, oh, they've, trans- they've translated this perfectly, as in they found something really interesting to do with this. And that's really been, I am someone who is very familiar with the Thomas Harris canon. I've read the books, I've seen the movies, and it's just been really fascinating to watch, uh, to watch Brian Fuller and company cherry pick their way through the Harris canon and various lines reappropriated for different, for different scenes, various characters introduced at places they never were at the books. So there's been a lot of very interesting new things that they've been able to put together in the past two and a half seasons. That being said, watching them adapt this story and get into actually making it an adaptation as opposed to a pastiche, it's really surprising to see. I thought they'd used everything up. They have not. Yeah, the I I love that we're starting with this. And um, I, I, you know, I'm the opposite end of the spectrum from you, Les. I've seen Silence of the Lambs, so I guess I could have seen less uh, total. Uh, but I have seen no, none of the other ad- adaptations. I mean, I, I'm sure I saw like a trailer for Hannibal at some point, the movie, the film. Uh, I've read none of the books, and I don't want to. I I feel no draw to read or watch the other materials because, as you said, Sean. I'm not interested in Hannibal Lecter. I'm interested in Brian Fuller's Hannibal. That is the property that interests me, that has the the perspective and priorities that I connect with. Um, When the series is done, sure, I will, maybe I'll watch the other stuff if, you know, (laughs) for for this podcast or, you know, just because our, our our friend over at Sound Estate, Ricky D, keeps harassing me that I really need to watch Manhunter, and I'm sure he's right. Um, but right now, I have no interest in seeing any of the other stuff because that I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in this world. And when it comes to adaptations, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, Sean. And I think you can just... The best example for that, for me, um, the most uh, common touch point I think people have is just look at the Harry Potter films. Because the first two films, especially the first film, it goes out of its way to recreate the book scene by scene. And because it's trying so hard to recreate the the lines of the book, it, for me at least, and especially the second second film, it misses the spirit. I don't need you to, to, to adhere to the plot. I don't need you to adhere to the specifics. I need you to adhere to the the tone and the 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 heart of of what it is what is it about what is it trying to say what is it what is it that makes this property inherently itself and then go from there and if and even if you're not interested in that that's fine if it's as long as it's good right as long as it's good when you look at at theater there's no sense that you have to there's only one way to tell a story um there are constant restagings of popular plays and musicals um, and opera with with different settings, with different, you know, like the, the text will remain the same usually. Sometimes there's, it's like in Shakespeare, sometimes they'll cut some stuff. 
um, and, and highlight certain things more than others. But um, usually the text stays the same, but the context around it can be shaped. The delivery of lines change significantly to to alter the perspective of, of, of a scene or the, the who the main character is or add subtext or any of the other stuff because what's important is not slavish devotion to the what is on the page but again trying to get at the heart of what the thing that's on the page or on the painting or in the original film what it is trying to convey what its message is what it is interested in or what that draws out in the adapter so uh, i wholeheartedly agree and I actually get really frustrated watching, and this is something I was a guest on Eat the Rudecast this week, uh, which was lovely talking with them. More on that later, because they blew my mind. We'll get back to it. <laughs> um, but we talked about it over there, and um, and, and I, as I mentioned there, I get really frustrated with people who seem to think that if you haven't watched, or like, watched the other material or read the other material, you can't possibly understand it as well, or that... This adaptation, if it changes a character or if it um, if it has a different priority, for example, uh, recently having Hannibal surrender instead of being trapped or caught, that that is wrong and that's a betrayal of the character. No, for this show, that was the right thing to do. The original is still there. You can go read the books. You can go watch the other movies. We're not deleting them from the canon. This take this is what it needs to be. And there's not a right or wrong way for Brian Fuller to do it. He's the creator. He's the showrunner. He gets to decide what this world is. Um, so I get actually, it's, it's, it's a very particular topic for me as well, Sean, you're not alone. I'm glad. And I'm really glad that you both seem to agree. Les, did you have more to add? Well, I was also going to say sort of similarly on the topic of adaptation, of adaptation, and particularly this adaptation. Kate, you talk about not wanting to read the books before the series is over. And I honestly do think that part of that, I, I've, I, I've had issues with the first half season of Hannibal, a lot of those issues that you guys actually discussed on last week's This Is Our Design with Libby. And I, one of the problems I had with it was watching the adaptation, I could see the pieces that they were taking out of Hannibal and Hannibal Rising. And the problem is that I think the the reason this season hasn't really worked has had problems is because it's borrowing from a from those books that have a much more florid operatic tone to them than say Red Dragon and Science of the Lambs. I mean, Red Dragon is at its core it's a it's a cop it's a it's a straightforward police novel. It's uh it's a detective trying to ca- trying to catch a killer. He just happens to be consulting another killer in that point. And I think that they sort of lost the tone that they'd gotten from adhering so closely to Red Dragon by getting too deeply into the other books, which is why, honestly, this episode felt like so much of a breath of fresh air because the orient- the adaptation is recalibrating to what it was adapting in the first place. Okay, but I got to take just a little question mark at that because just because it's changing from what it was or it is changing from maybe what our conceptions of what we thought it would be are based on the the red dragon source material doesn't mean that it's wrong or that's a problem it just means it's different and every show shifts and changes as it continues the the creators the directors the writers get interested in certain things characters 
all of a sudden by season three, they're the comedy guy where they started out the drama guy. And uh, it's a completely different approach, but it doesn't mean it doesn't work. And for me, uh, and, and I'm sure you know all of this, Les, because you're very, you know, you're very savvy of, of, of the, the workings of TV. Um, for me, I can't imagine the first half of this season with that different tone. I love that they felt free to open up to explore a new direction and and take on this different tone. I didn't see it as a problem at all. Yeah, I, I agree it's not a problem. And I mean, more power to them. I'm just saying that the tone that they were going for in those first episodes, in that first half, wasn't the tone of Hannibal that's my favorite tone of the show. Like it was, again, the common phrase, the show was disappearing up its own butt getting to and just embracing that florid operatic quality. That's fine. It's just not the version of the show. That's my favorite version of the show. And I'm not criticizing them for taking that course of action. I'm just saying I like it better when I like it better when Will's investigating crimes as opposed to moping around. (laughs) Fair enough. Agree to disagree then, I guess. Um, But uh, any thoughts on this, Sean, or or are we delaying our discussion of, of of the dragon no not at all uh because i think that this is a really really important point to strike home and both of you bring up other aspects of it that i had wanted to mention uh and to respond to to les's description of this half season the first half season which all of us have had uh different and varying degrees of difficulty with um it it could be coincidence that part of that comes from the fact that it's uh pastiching aspects of the source material in not great ways, but ultimately what that is is not the the source material's uh, fault or issues with that. It's it comes down to the creation of it. So it's mostly if there were issues, it was it's down to the showrunner who has had such utter control of this series to that point um, to kind of take the fall for any kind of thematic or tonal things that weren't really working and yeah we we talked about that last week so if you'd like to hear us which we kind of rarely do not because we we don't like to criticize but just because there's few things to to genuinely criticize about hannibal but if you missed last week's episode and you'd like to hear us talk a little bit more about that uh, please go back and do so but uh, the group of people that you mentioned kate which to me is just one of the most repulsive and disgusting is that group that believes honestly that their knowledge of the source material uh, means that they have more things uh, at their disposal and that they hold a higher position than anybody who is not, which is just absolutely ridiculous. That's the first dangerous group of people that I would mention. And that's the other one is the one who doesn't necessarily believe that, but thinks that there's like legitimate value and value that goes so far as to like affect their um, opinions about the quality of the thing. Um, that there's legitimate value in comparing the two things. Like, so for instance, to say, oh, Anthony Hopkins did this and this better than Mass Mikkelsen, and so that means that I like Hannibal the series a little bit less? No, not at all. And our listeners are very intelligent, and that's why we love them. But I know that many of them will at least know other people who maybe haven't even gotten into Hannibal for that reason, and I would encourage everybody to kind of you know, take a stand in, in, in this conversation because it's important that Brian Fuller's Hannibal is it's totally its own thing. That's why we fell in love with it to begin with, because here we all were thinking, what, what would we need a Hannibal TV series for? There's no use for this, especially with all the, the cop serial killer shows on TV. And then we all got our minds blown. 
Yeah. And I do think uh, to kind of pivot us, I guess, into the conversation of this episode a little more specifically, when you say, Les, that this episode feels like kind of coming home to the, the version of the show that you prefer, um, I wholeheartedly agree. There's This feels in many ways very much like the pilot. It's very reminiscent of the pilot between the, the shooting of some of the scenes and just where Will is at and some of these other characters as well. Um, so while I may not agree with everything, all of your opinions on it, I absolutely agree. Co-sign on that. Point of yeah. agreement. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, and sort of to uh, uh, keeping with that, that was something that I was honestly concerned about going into this episode because the beat of the beginning of the in the pilot where Jack comes to Will and says you make jumps people can't that you can't explain I need that out in the field that's the same beat that's in the first chapter of Red Dragon and the and the beat that's played here when Jack goes to see Will and I was concerned that it was going to feel like just a We've seen this argument before, but and here's the advantage of the fact that they've been doing this show for two and a half years. You totally buy because you have experience in Jack and Will's relationship. You've seen the ups and downs that both men have gone through, both together and separately, that you understand completely why this is a this is the same request, but it's under different circumstances that Jack is asking the questions for Will to come back, knowing that it, Will's going to take it a completely different way, and that Will understands why Jack's coming to him in these circumstances. It just, it it's the same beats, but it feels so different, the conversation they're having. There's so much history behind their interactions. Some of that's also just Lawrence Fishburne, the delivery of it, because when you think, like you say, he's he's saying the same stuff, only now when he says, I know what I'm asking, he actually does. Uh, and when he said that in season one, I'll make sure he doesn't get too far to the edge and, you know, all this stuff. He really, really didn't. And that's why he could be fun, blustery Jack um, and loud Jack <laughs> and angry Jack. This Jack is saying the same words, but the 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 experience layered behind them um, Lawrence Fisherman, I think, does a really good job in that scene with Will of making sure that comes through and that because we know that he knows and so does Will, that gives a, a much truer depth to that interaction and with Molly as well than what we were getting, the sort of like brush off of, you know, and the bulldog, like, I'm just going to throw you into the field. It's swim, <laughs> swim in the deep end, Will, of season one. And I have thoughts on this. I actually had a question. I'll just kind of turn it into my own answer because there's the, uh, some of the decisions that Jack makes in this I, I find curious. And I, obviously, Will is spectacular at his job. And, you know, maybe not everything that needed to go down perfectly in these years with Hannibal Lecter uh, did. But the fact that eventually under whatever circumstances, somebody like Hannibal Lecter, who is just the perfect killer and one of the, the most elusive people uh, for any of these characters to encounter, the fact that he's behind bars and that Will was also able to stop a bunch of other murderers is a testament to, to his gift and what he does. So, it, I mean, down the line, it, it makes sense that Jack would approach Will. But a lot of like thought has to go into that for him because he knows what he's dragged Will through before, he 
did to some extent lose him. He and that was you know off the back of losing Miriam Lass as well. And granted, both of the characters are still alive, um, some more intact than others, but those are things that genuinely genuinely disturbed Jack and, and made him reluctant at first to kind of let Will go off, even though he felt like he could reel him back in. And we get that aspect on top of him, Jack, ignoring Will's request to kind of keep the photos away, at least when Molly and Walter come. And uh, he he brings them out, shows Molly in a very manipulative scene, I would say, to kind of get her on board so that he'll so that she'll say something to him. Um, and I guess the only line of thought that I could take for this to kind of be okay is that Jack must recognize the severity of this situation, that this isn't the normal run-of-the-mill artistic serial killer who Will's going to be able to, to you know, identify patterns with and do his thing quickly and efficiently, that this is a whole other beast. And responses to that, but without kind of going into the Red Dragon, because I want to devote specific time to that. Well, it's not just that, I think. Um, it's also... If Will, as soon as Jack pulls up in the car, we go, and again, I'm keying into the stuff because of my, my, the way I analyze the music, um, but we go from no scoring, no soundtrack, nothing, just ambient noise and the dogs, to a low rumble that won't leave. There's an, an inevitability to it, and of course, some of that's because we know that this is a TV show, and we know that they're not going to not have Will in it. But also, if Will really didn't want to go if he wasn't going to be willing to go if he didn't some part of him didn't know that he had to because of who he is jack wouldn't have made it to the porch yeah and yet jack doesn't make there's an intro there's that great line where he brings the coffee out and says you're not gonna invite uh I, you're not gonna let me inside oh you don't want to let me in and he's like i've just come too far to be turned away i think kate your choice of word inevitability is a good word there because there's just almost like both of them know exactly how this is going to play out that he that will knows he doesn't want to go but jack knows that will doesn't want to go but will go at some but will eventually wind up going there's just uh and again going back to it feels like we've had this conversation before we have and both but both of the characters are cognizant they've had this conversation before and there's sort of a weary resignedness of yeah we both know how this is going to go but we're going to go through the motions of it yeah it's like a dance it's they know the steps but they need to go through it they need to go through the motions of that and like oh don't get pictures out because they're coming back that's why i don't want to see the pictures um so that it is made they're making clear to each other how uh how strongly they feel what they are saying even if Will knows that he, you know, some part of him that he may not want to acknowledge knows that he's going to have to go. And if he doesn't go, and then he's like Molly says, and Molly knows him well enough to know to to say this. If he doesn't go and more people die, he won't forgive himself. And he may he, he some part of him is aware of that or else he wouldn't be getting coffee for Jack that like that level of civility it's been three years that they theoretically haven't t spoken to each other so obviously they owe each other a tremendous a tremendous debt they were these really close friends but it's been three years and he doesn't want to go but will knows he has to jack knows he really doesn't want to and so he needs to respect the the dance to get will out the door 
to really show just how much he means it and just how needed Will is. So, um, again, for me, that there's there's an inevitability to it because it's a TV show, but also because of who these people are and just how bad the situation has gotten. And this is something, again, I mentioned over on Eat the Rootcast, but I think it merits mentioning again. For all we know, Jack tried to not get him. Because he didn't come after the first murders. He came after the second. And so, to me, it makes sense that Jack tried not to come. Otherwise, he wouldn't be on... He wouldn't be at Will's house, like, the day after the second murders. That's that's a really good way of putting it for me. Just because that reminds me of uh, reasons that we love Jack. His professionalism, of course, but knowing that or believing that uh he this is his last ditch effort to try and prevent further things like this from happening on top of the fact that he does respect the dance which you're right you know thinking about it now i agree uh i guess the reason i was scrutinizing it more and was maybe a little bit annoyed with jack is because of how protective i feel of this will graham which is really weird because you know we watch these shows critically and or we try to and I, I very rarely like develop emotional attachments to, to certain things. That sounds weird because things like affect me powerfully emotionally. And, you know, I'll often feel that or I'll cry in, in a certain episode or a film or something like that. But it, it's still from like the detached perspective, of just like watching a beautiful story unfold. But I weirdly feel protective of this version of Will Graham to the point where there's a, a moment in, later in the episode that we'll talk about later in this discussion that kind of made me feel sick to my stomach about what was happening to Will. And so even though I know that this is the direction that we have to go, I, I really don't want him to go. Well, and we see this will so rarely, and that's part of that connection for me to the pilot of, and he is a different will from the pilot because he does, he's not wearing his glasses. He's not hiding his face in a book. He's not disconnecting from a classroom. He's has this incredibly warm relationship with, with his, with well, Molly. I didn't notice rings. Are they married? Are they just together? I'm not sure. I know in the book they're, they're married, but um, anyways, with Molly and with Walter, clearly he's very comfortable with Walter and these dogs. He's come a long way since the pilot, but this level of togetherness without the distraction and without the obsession with Hannibal, we've only seen, like, we've never really seen a Will this happy and this together, so it's right that you should be protective of him. Yeah, that moment when he's t- when they're having dinner and he jokes about how Molly likes taking in strays and she just ch- and they just share that little grin and smile. Like to find somebody who actually understands Will Graham and isn't trying to analyze him. This isn't someone who's going to manipulate him or that's trying to take advantage of him. She understands and accepts him. And for someone like Will Graham to find that, it's, I understand exactly, Sean, why you feel protective of this, because we've spent so much of this season, uh, this series, appearing like the only person who was going to understand him is the one who used his encephalitis to just wind him up like a top. Which is why Molly holds so much value here. And I was just kind of blown away by a, a very short exchange that managed to just give her immediate depth of character where they're in the bedroom together and he's talking about leaving and he says that if he goes, he's going to be different when he comes back. And just those simple words, I I won't. Like, that's 
exactly what we needed to hear from a character in that position who can support Will, maybe not in the same ways that um, like the perfect version of Hannibal Lecter was, but that made me feel very, very comfortable, and it was really surprising and exciting that they were able to do that so quickly with that character. I yeah. loved that line just as much as you did, it sounds. And, it, and it's such a simple line. It's such a simple delivery. But they took the choose me over yourself, over what you have to do. Choose me over all the families this guy will slaughter kind of character. That's what that that supportive wife character gets turned into so frequently. They just turned it on its head and made her a rock. And I love yeah. it. Yeah, and actually, I give a lot of credit for the casting on this one, because the actress playing Molly, Nina Arianda, she and Hugh Dancy did appear together in the play Venus in Fur, for which she won a Tony. And so these are two actors who have familiarity with each other and who know how to interact. So I thought that was just a great piece of casting and a very smart piece of casting to actually make make us believe that Molly was someone who could connect with Will Graham and who would, as you say, be willing to push him on this journey because she knew this was what he had to do. Absolutely. Yeah, just talking about that, maybe it's because I'm a couple glasses of wine in, but I'm getting kind of emotional. Um, I'm going to have to move on to the next topic before uh, that gets too out of hand. Um, so we've talked about adaptation uh, we've mentioned the Red Dragon so far. This is the one of the key aspects of this episode, of course, that we are going to be talking about. Uh, here he is. This was Richard Armitage, you know, coming off of having to slay a, a different kind of Red Dragon in The Hobbit, who is now playing <laughs> the Red Dragon, Francis Dollarhide. Uh, Kate, you're absolutely cold with this. You've not seen Dollarhide before in any kind of uh, context. What were your impressions of Richard Armitage as this character. Um, I my impression of Armitage was um, he's really good. Crap! I get why people have been so excited. I mean, I still don't completely get why people are so so excited about Red Dragon because um, I like I've I've heard like just det- like things piecemeal like piecemeal like little little things about it. But people whose opinion I greatly respect who are not normally serial killer fans are very, very excited about this. Um, so I still don't get all of that, because it still feels like stuff I've seen before. But um, the the physicality of the performance, the choice to keep everything with Dollar Hyde dialogue-free, other, except for that mumbling under his breath as he does his speech exercises, um, the, the, the use of the camera to highlight the physicality of Dollar Hyde highlight him as a physical entity the way that, and again, I, I mentioned this in my review at Sound of Sight, the way that Hannibal is a mental uh, or cerebral entity and Will is, he's he's the heart. Dollar Hyde is the body. And to, to, the, the the performance from Armitage, the the writing of the scenes, the, the direction from Neil Marshall, all comes, the score from Brian Reitzel, which is fantastic, just under Mizumono as far as how integral it is to the, to an episode of Hannibal. Um, it all comes together to make a fascinating, fascinating character. In, like, how many minutes of, of screen? You you would know, Sean. How many minutes of screen? <laughs> screen time. Oh, God. Uh, let's talk for a bit. I'm going to count up the minutes that we have uh, Dollar Hide on the screen. Okay. Well, I was 
absolutely floored by his performance here. And in addition to like having familiarity with this, I also have familiarity watching Richard Armitage, both in the Hobbit movie, but also in the original Strike Back series where he played John Porter and where he's very good in that, just at, at portraying both the toughness, but also the wounded quality of of just that so, that sort of soldier of fortune. And he brought all of that here again as you say he had we maybe should have mentioned this when you were doing Hannibal by the numbers like number of lines he has zero lines and yet he leaves such an indelible port an indelible impression on us and I'm gonna speak about this in the adapt going back to our adaptation discussion but also not without it also without spoilers that he's doing something very interesting compared to some of the other portrayals we've seen of the red dragon I mean, Tom, uh, Tom Noonan in Manhunter portrays Dollar Hyde as a, in a very almost alien, otherworldly quality. And Ray Fiennes in Red Dragon, the Brett Ratner film, alternates between snarling psycho and wounded child. There's something very just coiled about the way he about the way Armitage is playing Dollar Hyde, both in the in the in the dancing net, uh, dancing workout he has the way he just sort of cracks his hands, trying to force them into a claw shape, to the way he prostrates himself before the great red dragon painting. There's just something so tense and coiled about his performance, like he's just waiting to strike. And it's it's just so marvelous to witness him doing all of this and also just get a glimpse, just get glimpses of what's going on under the surface, because you really do get the impression this is not someone or something that tries to let anything show uh, below the surface. There's also a sense of discovery in this as well. When he's doing these movements, when he's, uh, when he's examining his hand, when we zoom in on his skin, it looks like scales. Um, there's very much a sense of him being made more and more aware of whatever is inside, whether or not he wants to doesn't really matter um but to to put all of these physical elements with a sense of of discovery of cautious and maybe perhaps fearful discovery really you believe that this is we're seeing the creation of a monster and uh and he doesn't i really think armitage's performance is impressive because i get fear i get confusion I get uh, power. I get elation. I I get religious fer- fervence. Um, I'm not sure if that's a word, but anyway, fervor. Fervor. Yes, that's the word. Um, I get all of that at most of it at once too, and uh, and I'm sure I'm reading into it somewhat because that's that's how we roll here at This Is Our Design. But <laughs> I don't think I'm reading into it that much. Just to quickly say, uh, Kate, giving uh, the context of why some people are excited about this. The reason I was excited and was really interested in these scenes is that we're seeing something of the Red Dragon storyline we have not seen before. In both of in both of the movies, we're not introduced to Dollar Hyde until after the murders, after he's sort of finding this shape of whatever sort of monster he's turning into. So these are this this cold open of him getting his tattoo getting these teeth fitted just staring at the blake painting and fascinated and being fascinated by it 
we have this is a, something that's never been adapted before in this version of the story. And speaking as a fan of the book, Fowler absolutely knocked it out of the park. And Fowler and Neil Marshall absolutely knocked it out of the park in these scenes. Yeah, and to answer your question, Kate, I I don't think you're reading too much into this just because um, all of the emotions and the qualities that you pick up on, I think, are there, and that this also relates to why I'm I'm so worried about Will in this episode because of his empathy disorder, and for him to feel so many of those things all at once is a huge, huge issue, which is why I think it was so smart to hold off on this character and to give it its due and to have it... I mean, really, this could have been a whole season, probably, but even just six episodes, which is, of course, longer than either of the films, probably both of them combined, um, that we're really going to see how this affects Will Graham because this has been the crux of Brian Fuller's Hannibal, is what uh, becoming these people is like for him and how that affects him and how that damages him and how he's able to get out of that with the help of others sometimes, sometimes on his own, sometimes not at all. Um, but that's, it's absolutely integral that those points are made and the, those observations are made. Uh, to refer back to Hannibal by the numbers, uh, just a quick count, zero lines of dialogue for a dollar height, as we said, in uh, kind of 10 minutes and 43 seconds of screen time. Uh, part of that is a two minute, 22 second uh, scene that's shared with Hannibal the, the intersplicing of the two, you know, with the newspaper clippings. But for the most part, that's all dollar hide, which is amazing that you get no dialogue during 10 minutes plus of screen time. It's yeah, it's a quarter of the episode then just about. And uh, that's a lot of the episode. Um, but again, with no dialogue and only 10 minutes, I feel like I have a really strong sense of the of the character and how he's starting to progress yeah and i'm going to be interested to see how much context because again they don't really neither one of the movies is is really super interested in show, in getting into the details of, of how Dollar hyde becomes this thing this dragon and it's going to be interesting to see how much they're going to feel they need to give us in terms of that context or or they're just going to be content with these flashes because honestly these flashes, there's gaps to fill in, but you can there's almost enough. And I completely agree. That's the biggest question mark going forward. And even with no context of Thomas Harris or any adaptations, uh, just by virtue of the nature of this kind of story, which is a story uh, involving a detective and a serial killer, it's it's really, really important how shows incorporate how we deal with the antagonists. You know, I really liked, for instance, the fall when it began, but the more we got to know that that killer, the less I became interested in it and how the handling of that is carried out, I think make or breaks makes or breaks um, a lot of the story. And so that maybe is why this is such a great introduction, such a fantastic foundation for Dollahide is because you know, we're not trying to make him sympathetic or anything like that or try to understand the mind of the Red Dragon, really. It, it feels more like we're on the outside looking in at something horrific. And I think Will's visit to the Leeds house is testament to that. And, yeah, just to reiterate, it, it was a very, very powerful introduction for the character. Shall we 
talk a little bit about the Lee's house then? Yeah. Can I, yeah. Can, I can I lead off with yeah, oh, the, the way that uh, Eat the Rude cast, our friends over there, uh, Cooper and Ophelia, blew my mind? So I watched this episode, I want to say five times, because I watched it once to take it in, and then I watched it again to take detailed notes for my review, my delightful color-coded notes, um, with, you know, repeating scenes over again as needed if I didn't quite catch dialogue. And then I watched it again uh, f to take my notes just about the music, and again, repeating many sequences several times to, you know, like little 30 seconds here and there to, to really get a sense of what I was hearing. And then I watched it again with my sister who hadn't seen it yet at that point. So I guess that's four times. So I've watched it at least four times, uh, but with the amount of rewatching I did and looping of scenes, probably about five. And I had completely missed that at the Leeds house, when Will has his ethereal, you know, or demonic, I guess, wings made of the blood spatter, you know, strings, he says, this isn't my design. Because I heard this is my design every time I watched. And then I was talking with our our friends over at Eat the Rootcast, and they brought that up. And as soon as we... And I, I, I said, I guess I'll come down on the side of he's saying this is. And then after we finished recording there, I watched it again, and they're absolutely right. He says this isn't my design, and they exploded my brain. What do you guys <laughs> think about that? Yeah, you guys cannot see. Yeah, you cannot see me because it's a podcast. But, but that just—it's so fascinating to watch this scene because they spend so much time emphasizing how much Will doesn't want to do this. They—you actually notice it that he has to do the pendulum. Which, by the way, going back to me saying that this felt like my Hannibal again, I was so just. I clapped with glee to see the pendulum return, but they have to do the pendulum twice. First, when he's in the Leeds bedroom to sort of clear his mind of it, but then he has to go outside and then the pendulum has to go again to put him into the killer's mindset. And just the sheer, uh, Hugh Dancy is just so physical in those moments. You can see the tremble in him as he's fighting, going back into this headspace, even though once he's there, he's just, moving with as much efficient ruthlessness as Dolerhide was. But the fact that they that they're making it clear again, even though we know how hard this is previously for Will, that it's harder now than it's ever been before. Yeah, I hope we don't regurgitate too much of uh the Eat the Rootcast discussion, but there's a lot of great questions to consider um now that we know it's this isn't my design. Of course it fits in with uh, the issues of Will not wanting to be here in the first place, him being rusty and maybe not ready for this just yet. But it's also, I think it also has to do with um, what I mentioned about Dollarhide being a, a different beast altogether, is that he's not going to be as easy to understand for Will, which I don't think that, that the decision to go see Lecter at the end is simply because Will's having difficulty in that situation uh, at the house. It's it's also because he kind of gets a sense or a feel of how hugely different this has been from any of his other experiences that he's going to need Hannibal to even approach this in the same way that he used to. 
Well, and there's also that this isn't Dollar Hyde's design because he has to touch her. And so there's this, and, and the first half of that scene, the score is one thing. And then after the glass shatters, it completely changes and it feels it's, it's a separate thing. So it's like the killing and the positioning and everything that was the design, but then dollar high couldn't stop himself. And that's all the stuff we don't see. And I'm very, very grateful to Fuller and company that we don't and to Neil Marshall as well. We'll talk about that. I'm sure, but he can't stop himself from continuing on past that point. Either this isn't my design yet. I can't help myself. I've already achieved my design, but now I'm going to mess it up. Or this isn't my design as in, I still have work to do. Uh, but, th but the delivery from Dancy for that line, it's uncertain. It's this should, I should be happy. Why am I not, why have I not achieved it? It's there's uncertainty. There's a pause before he says, isn't his voice. The inflection rises instead of normally when he says, he goes, this is my design. Confident voice goes down at the end. Um, it's it's a different delivery here. So it's not. I I, think, I agree. It's will he understanding the severity of the situation and how much unfortunately he will need. He does think he needs Hannibal's help. But I think it's also dollar hide. He's not. And it also could be a nod to the progressing nature of serial killers, where it's each theoretically each crime they are trying to achieve a perfect fill in the blank and, and they, their method and their approach becomes refined with each, with each kill. So it could also be that, but I think there's a lot to unpack there. And it, I think it's dollar hide and will, and not one or just the other, and just one or the other. I, I also think referring back to your mention of the religious fervor, if this isn't just dollar hides design, I think it's also the red dragons design and looking at it in that religious aspect of him worshiping this beast, because we get the beast haunting him in this episode. As he's watching the film, um, he sees a shadow go across from the other side of the room. We hear the growling. Uh, and so it feels like the dollar hide. Then this has, this is not coming from anywhere with my familiarity with the material. It feels like in this episode, in this version, this is dollar hide carrying out some actions, um, because of that influence. So it's, it's weird because as I said before, I'm, I'm very hesitant when it comes to humanizing characters like this, but it's at least interesting to consider uh, a character who is maybe so possessed by something that it's out of his own control, which we may or may not get into during the course of this story, but it was something that stood out to me as we were watching some of the scenes. Yeah, and that's that's also interesting to sort of looking at it in context of some of the various other serial killers that we've seen on Hannibal up to and including Hannibal. Uh, every all of them from the beehive killer to the mushroom killer to the to the angel killer to uh, the totem pole killer, they're entirely in there. There's a sense that they're in control that as messed up as their own logic is, they know why they're doing that, what they're doing. And they, when we, when we finally see them, they're just basically explaining what they want to do. We've never seen one of the, these killers starting out from the beginning of sort of developing their, developing their design for lack of a better, for lack of a better term. So to see Dolorheide basically sort of 
trying to put this together and struggling with it and sort of struggling with the impulses and almost patting his ears so he can't hear some of these impulses. It's a really interesting change of pace for Hannibal to do. And one, I'm glad that they're going to they're clearly going to play this out over multiple episodes. One other thing uh, before I move on, uh, touching on what you said less about your experience watching Will's uh, investigation and then, of course, bringing back the, the mantra that has been a part of this series since the beginning, this is my design, um, and how the pendulum and all of that factor in. Um, that that experience and those feelings of kind of elation that seeing Will do this and like, yes, you know, this is it. I think that comes from a place of like, us being just such huge fans of this series. And I think that that's totally appropriate, but I wanted Kate for you to weigh in on this as well, that the other part of me, the other feelings that I had during that, uh, and going back to what I've been saying about Will throughout this episode is the way in which Will is like actively avoiding going into that routine to where as soon as he sees the, where Mrs. Lee's body was and the blood spatter there, and he kind of has to quickly and nervously start pulling out the case notes. And you could tell that he's shaking and that he's so worried about the thing that's going to happen next. There is, yes, that anticipation of like, oh, here we are. We're going to get into it and we're back to the pilot. And it really does feel like moments in the pilot. But it's also like, oh, good God, I don't want Will to have to do this all over again. So I just want to quick, uh, quickly chime in that moment where he's looking at the files. You can almost feel like he's desperately looking at they're trying to see if he can find some clue, some example without having to do this. Like he's clutching at a last resort. Yeah, he's doing he, he, he doesn't want to do the pendulum. He wants maybe I can just look at it at the the files and at the crime scene and be able to help without resorting to that. It's like. And the same thing, we see the same thing um, happening with Dollarhide, where he's trying to to hit the these other sounds out of his head, and he's trying to to quiet himself without letting the dragon in to some extent, or or something that he knows is going wrong within him, without letting that take over and let letting that quiet everything, and that happens literally in the score but also in the you know the performances and so here we see will he's just every little detail of this crime scene is coming at him and there's too much he can't process it all it's attacking him and he clutches like you're saying less he's clutching that file like a life preserver and it's just not enough and so the only way he can cope is to bring the pendulum pendulum out and sweep away everything else that he's seeing and disconnect emotionally from connecting to the victims to connecting to the killer. And uh, yeah, he's desperate to not do it, but that's the only way he can process the scene because it's just too traumatic. It is traumatic to let the dragon in. And yeah, this he is tries, some... he tries to observe, but he must participate. Yeah. And that's, that's always been the case with, Bill Graham and it's the unfortunate circumstance of his gift and it's it's going to be a huge huge obstacle and the only other thing I wanted to bring up before we move into the recurring segments for the podcast is that decision to go see Hannibal and um, Hannibal's note to Will which includes the wording that this is from a friend and of course Hannibal would say something like that but also the wording that I think that we can look at this 
in either one or both of two ways that Hannibal's warning to Will that madness lies on the other side of the door that the Jack has opened for him and that he shouldn't pursue it is actually coming from a place of uh, worry on Hannibal's part for Will because he doesn't want anything to happen to Will. But of course, even by virtue of sending something like that and getting into Will's head, it's also a way of attracting Will back to Hannibal. So, Les, I wanted you to maybe give some thoughts about how you interpret Hannibal's decision to send that note, what occurs in that note, and, and Will's reaction towards it. Uh, you see, that's interesting. I to- I've toyed with that idea, but I'm not 100% sure exactly what, because so much of Hannibal's motives are so inscrutable that it's tricky to realize what exactly he's trying to do. I feel, and it's just so hard because, again, I, I never believe, I believe so much of what Hannibal says, but I do think that for him, this is, this is sort of a baiting option. He's mentioning that this is all out there, but he is like, you can't step, if you step through that door, there's madness on that side. But I think he knows Will well enough and that Will, that he knows Will is going to step through that door in the efforts of helping people. But there's also something in his me- in his message that I part of his part of him is trying to say, I hope you do step through that door. It would be so nice to see you again. But I just feel like the whole message is, regardless of how much it's sympathetic toward Will, is still all couched in Hannibal's best interest because Hannibal does nothing if it's not in his interests slash entertainment. Yeah, he's a petulant creature, and we've seen that all season. We saw that, um, I mean, like, Soliato, he just, like, says, well, technically you killed him. I mean, so he's like, I think, I feel like some of this is him wanting to be able to, like you say, knowing that Will's going to come, um, being excited that Will's going to come, but telling himself that he is being completely genuine in reaching out with his reverse psychology and passive aggressiveness. Um, And that way, when Will comes, Hannibal can say, I told you you shouldn't come. I told you it was going to get dark. You know, I tried to help you out like a friend. You know, I think there's all of that going on at once. Part of him is play acting the the concerned, legitimate friend. Um, But a lot more like that. You can barely see the sheen of that at the surface because there's so much more self-interest underneath. Yeah. And the moment I love that, that moment when he's like, it's again, a mirror of the season, the season one finale where Will is behind the cell and he says, hello, Will. Hello, Dr. Lecter. The exact same thing plays out here. Hannibal just turns out, Oh, fancy seeing you here. Hello, Will. And Hannibal's, or Nicholson's delivery of that line, I should say. Um, it's There's something different about it uh, than what I had anticipated or expected. And, and maybe this informs why I feel like his letter to Will may or may not, well, I guess it probably does include some of that reverse psychology, but the, the greater part of me wants to believe that um, just because this is such a unique relationship between two people in any kind of story that I've ever seen, um, that it does come down to, to Will, uh, to Hannibal wanting to protect Will. And it, it almost feels, and I got a slight sense, that Hannibal's a little bit upset or disappointed 
in that moment to be seeing Will because he was hoping that a, a part of him maybe was hoping that it wouldn't come down to this. I don't know. I, I, I can't be, I can't be sympathetic towards Hannibal after, after everything we've seen. Like he's, he purposely turned himself in knowing that was going to be a twist in the knife because Will's, Will's like, I'm done with you. And then Hannibal's like, okay, well, you're always going to know where I am. I just in the Hannibal Will relationship, I find it really hard to for Hannibal to see that Hannibal has his interest in having Will in his orbit is far primary to his interest in Will being okay. I I need to rewatch it because that's I I didn't pick up on that at all, uh, Sean. Which doesn't mean it's not there. Um, what do you think of this notion that if if there's disappointment, part of it is that he's disappointed that the Tooth Fairy is what got him to finally come visit. I can buy that, especially after Hannibal and Chilton's conversation, which Chilton's right, that there's clearly a competitive edge in Hannibal in his relationship with the Tooth Fairy and knowing that that's kind of what people are paying attention to now that Hannibal's become old hat. Though part of me was like, I, 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 again, going like, I don't know if I can believe anything Hannibal says in that regard. Part It made sense, but part of me wanted to disbelieve it because Chilton is a terrible psychologist. <laughs> well, <laughs> Mickelson's performance, it's it's there. Uh, but yeah, I, I think Chilton is not great. But I mean, I think it's also when you compare him to, first of all, he's a, his priorities are all wrong. Um, meaning that he can't possibly be great uh, at what he does because he's not interested in helping his patients. Um, but also, he, he's in comparison with Alana and with uh, with, with Hannibal and even <laughs> with Jack. So I mean, you put a, you're putting him next to some really insightful people. He's gonna be comparatively weak. But um, but that scene was hilarious. It was delightful. The colon stuff, the uh, <laughs> the dessert that looked gorgeous. Oh my uh, god, I I absolutely love the way that now Hannibal has been found out that, and we saw hints of plant bunch of this in the first half of the season. But he feels absolutely no need to disguise anything. That was just such a delicious line, a cow, but in the derogatory <laughs> sense. I laughed so hard when that happened. Not even the cow, who. <laughs> so really briefly because we're talking about this i was going to hold this for devil in the details but i remember in our rewatch of the first season i don't know what episode it was but it was early on and kate was talking to whoever our guest was at that point about uh you know just the, what information we have about hannibal lecter at that point and you know there was a close-up of wine being poured or something that like i thought to- of that you did, yeah, that where you questioned, like, no, we're not honestly supposed to believe that there's, like, people in the drinks, but now we found out that there really was. <laughs> yep. Explains okay, the lingering I, I, shots. <laughs> I was wonder. I was wondering, because I could, that actually, I could not remember what that was in reference to. Yeah, because Alana, there's a, Hannibal had a private reserve of beer for her. And this was one of those scenes that I believe got cut out of episode four. Uh, oof. Um, cause a lot of the Alana Hannibal stuff got cut out of that. Uh, cause that was the episode that didn't air and they put together that like 
those like webisodes of just the plot stuff. And so there's a lot of really great um, Abigail stuff and a lot of really great Alana Hannibal stuff that got cut out. But in that episode, you find out that um, while usually they drink wine, Hannibal knows that Alana prefers beer. So he has a special reserve of beer that's just for her that he like ages and everything that is apparently delicious that he has on hand in case she comes to visit because he's amazing. Ah, uh, yeah. And, uh, and now we know that there are people in the beer, which in is the beer. insane. All right. Well, for, <laughs> for the sake of Kate's sleep, we're going to move on to the recurring segments for the podcast, which of course begins with Kate's classical corner, which I can only assume starts with the ridiculous scoring in that opening sequence. Well, we'll get there. Never you fear, Sean. But we're going to start out as we always do with the classical selections. So there are two classical peaches, pieces, peaches, pieces featured in this episode. <laughs> the first is the Mozart Alleluia um, from from his. Uh, oh my goodness, I don't have it written down here. It's the Mozart Alleluia, Alleluia, with the boy soprano, and um, it, it's from a sacred motet for castrato originally. So it's usually performed by a, a, a soprano, a woman, or a boy soprano, as it is here. And I thought the performance from the the soloist was beautiful. Um, I looked up. I don't have his name in front of me. It's in my write-up at Sound on Sight, so you guys can go check that out for way more detail than I'll be able to get into here about the music, but also the name of that actor. I assume because he's played Gavroche um, in Les Mis before that it was also his singing. I don't know that for a fact, but I assume that is the case, and if so, he's got a set of pipes because that was lovely. Um, that's um, when Hannibal is self-scoring his arrest like he goes off to his mind palace while he's being arrested and incarcerated and the piece that he uh, uses is the Mozart Alleluia um, and um, that's from Exultate Jubilate or Jubilate um, that's what that's from um, it's lovely it's very simple it's a stark contrast to um, the events going around on around him but also it's very simple. So it makes sense to me that when he's beginning his who knows how many year long journey or, or, or a sentence in a jail cell until he decides to escape, that it would be a very simple piece rather than a large orchestral work or a uh, even a quartet or a um, certainly not an opera or something. He, he starts small. When he starts to get bored, maybe he'll go bigger. But for now, he's starting with a very pure sounding, a very simple uh, religious, obviously, it's Alleluia piece, and that the fact that it's religious also allows him to set it in his mind in the Norman Chapel, which he connects with Will. So everything about his arrest is intrinsically connected to Will, and that in goes down to the piece that is selected by Hannibal to accompany his arrest. Um, the other classical piece featured is the Schubert Nocturno, which was. Did you guys notice this? It was used two episodes ago. Oh. Yes, when when Mason and Cordell when Cordell is feeding Mason the the meals that the, that he have how he will prepare Hannibal the oh, exact Cordell, same piece is used. Textures. Yeah, exactly. So for me, this highlights how much um, Mason and Cordell are pretenders to the throne because you have the same piece juxtaposing those two scenes so in the one mason is like ah and cordell's like oh it's gonna taste better for realsies when we actually have people um and like mason's like gagging on it whereas with this it's just luscious 
the the chocolate and the milk and the texture, the viscosity of the blood with the milk, with the melting chocolate. It's just absolutely gorgeous, sensuous, and you, you feel like you can like smell it and feel the texture of it just by watching it. So by using the same classical piece in those two moments, you're seeing this is that's cute and all, Mason, that you think you know how you're going to prepare people. But uh, it's, it's, you're not you're not Hannibal. You'll never be Hannibal. And this is the kind of uh, scene. This is the kind of cinema, uh, of uh, editing and shot uh, composition and everything that should go with the Schubert. So um, I immediately when that when that started with the pouring of the milk and that piece came in, I was like, oh my god, that's so cool. So um, so far, nobody I've talked to had picked up on that. So I'm a crazy person, apparently. Uh, but I like to think that all this is intentional because there's only been three pieces repeated, classical pieces repeated in the, the history of the show, at least that I've noticed um, and that have been noticed by anybody else I've talked to. Uh, that's the raindrop prelude in season uh, two and also in season the beginning of season three and the foray Piazu in season two and then at the beginning of season three. So having the same piece two episodes apart from each other featured prominently that's not I don't, I don't feel like that's an accident but again i like to overanalyze so those are the two classical pieces any thoughts on those before i move on to scoring uh mm. well bravo to your on your attention to detail oh and by the way the the boy soprano's name was aiden glenn yes aiden glenn thank you and that just quickly that reminded me of the other episodes oof, that we got in season one that's also featured vocalization uh, one of the few instances of it and featured young boys pretty prominently in the, the story of that episode, too. Yeah, absolutely. And we, mm -hmm. we they've used Boy Soprano in the past um, with the foray, actually, I believe it was. But uh, there have been other times where you could use a Boy Soprano or uh, a Soprano, and they've used Boy Soprano each time that that's come up. Um, so that's an excellent point, Sean. Um, for the scoring, uh, I... I loved it <laughs> so much. The the what you take these classical pieces and each time we have those that classical piece it immediately follows a scene with Dollarhide and the very um aggressive scoring we have for Dollarhide with with that opening we get we get all this percussion but for me the big thing that I keyed into with this episode was that we have a string section for the first time on the show Ever. This is a show where the scoring by Reitzel has used solo cello. Um, in the B episode, there was a solo violin. Um, it likes solo instruments, solo clarinet, solo uh, like muted trumpet when we were off in Europe. But this has has a string section, like a thicker, like a it's very soft, but still uh, the sound of a group together as opposed to one instrument. Um, and that adds an epic feel or a much larger work feel to this. This is like a culmination of all the buildup of the two and a half seasons prior. We also, uh, the cohesive sound that comes with that is, is really striking. And again, it helps that I talked to Reitzel about this when I interviewed him back at the beginning of the season. He was working on this episode when I talked to him. And so after I saw this episode, some of the things that he had been saying about, you know, working with a 70 piece orchestra uh, by the end of the season uh, clicked in. And I it was really very striking to have not just a, a wide array of layered percussion instruments, but a whole section that he could play with if he wanted to. And it's not in the whole episode, but it's in certain moments very effectively. Uh, we get rattling we get a tambourine 
in that opening uh, sequence as he's working out that to me called to mind a dragon tinkling uh, like the tinkling gold underneath the dragon as he moves uh, or she got to be you know <laughs> de- dealing with dragons. Don't let's not be gender biased there. Um, there's the as as Dollarhide is stretching. There's these animalistic uh, motions in the physicality of the performance, but that's matched with like this low uh, low bass, low percussion. Um, very uh, the drums really match that motion. Then we get after Dollarhide lowers himself down after he's done working out and is ready to embrace the dragon. The score changes, and we get this this. Uh, strong four beat uh scoring so like i was watching i was conducting along before then you have different instruments doing different rhythms it all comes together to create a specific sound but you wouldn't necessarily go one two three four and there was very strong off beats like bum 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 like that kind of a thing in some of the percussion lines that makes everything line up together so he's moving forward with purpose he's very focused because at this point he's getting the tattoo he's genuflecting to the 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 painting and of course before that getting the the teeth as well um so that's when he's heading out to his kill when everything when all the percussion when all these other instruments come and line up together to create one focused sound and one focused rhythm the rhythm of the tattoo gun that sound of the tattoo gun comes back throughout the episode i have a feeling it's going to recur through the rest of the season when will is at the crime scene and we get the sort of ticking the very metronomic ticking in mizumono it was the same tempo but it was an egg timer here it's the same tempo but it's a tattoo gun and that shows us again the difference between the delicate uh elegance of hannibal and the brute physicality of dollar hide and these kinds of choices in the scoring most people are not like me they're not crazy people they're not going to notice all of this but it contributes to the overall feel of it of why does he feel more physical why does he feel uh more threatening why does hannibal feel more elegant and cold it's because of the kinds of choices like this that the entire production team is making um i could go on forever so i'm gonna try to cut this down my my write-up of the music is like over 1500 words this week over at sound Insight. so just ch- check that out um hopefully that won't continue because that took forever to write um and i already have things that i have changed my mind about <laughs> from it since publishing so uh your your model may vary but check that out over at sand on site um i'll mention the piano which comes in strongly at the crime scene for will the piano is his instrument um of course the will's happy place theme is very much piano uh, as will goes up the cr- up the stairs that's when the piano starts to kick in after he's come in and noticed the cheese um cl- there's a little clarinet for chilton we know I-, I always notice that that because i always think of clarinet for chilton though a lot of it, characters get clarinet there's some really lovely um, slap bass, pizzicato um, versus, uh, there's a lot of keyboard in here as well, synth and keyboard. Um, there's some really fun electric guitar for Alana. When Alana is talking to Hannibal, she gets this like electric guitar line that for me is reminiscent of when she we she had her like zoom in, I'm Old Testament justice moment. There was electric guitar there that was reminiscent of the good, the bad, and the ugly. So now we're three years in the future. She sells electric guitar, but instead of bum, bum, like that kind of a thing, it's much more, com- much less uh, aggressive or much less bold, maybe, and more nuanced. Um, 
Wow, goodness gracious. Uh, what else? I've got so many pages here. The film projector was really cool. <laughs> and oh, yeah. the how, opening. How, 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 have we not, how have we not talked about film wrapped uh, Fire Eye Demon Dolor Hide yet? I have a feeling we'll get there before the end. Um, the, the, the physicality of Dollar Hide matches very much the. It, it was an intentional homage to American Werewolf in London, that transformation. And you can feel that in the scoring. And the, the moon comes back a lot. And the scoring really, does, for me, keys into that as well with the sort of, again, the aggressive, more animalistic feel of it. Um, for Jimmy and Z, they get kind of like a like a jazzy kind of like drum snare thing going on as they're doing their work, which was a little fun and slightly, definitely a change of pace. We get minor strings. Again, the string section sounds so new for Hannibal as Molly is talking with Will. And there's, again, an inevitability to that sound that I really appreciate. Um, and there's just, there's a lot of really great touches throughout the whole crime scene. But we've already gone so long, I don't want to just list a bunch of things for you guys. So go to Sound On Site, read, read my post there. Because um, it was just really, it was very, it was very neat to hear the effects of, like, when, when Will is in the the children's room, there's sort of like a woo kind of feel to it that felt like in, maybe reminiscent of a ghost. Whereas... Um, when he's uh, the the strings, the use of the strings to kind of make a screeching sound, they go up and up and up and up. Whereas for Dollar Hyde, they went down and down as he tried to look behind the mirror or through the mirror. The notes, they just like this, the string section, the violins just come down until they eventually all settle together on a G. But they just keep coming down, pulling him down. Whereas for Will, they're aggressive. They're going up. They won't let him rest. Um, it's just really very exciting scoring and. Uh, I'm looking for, if this is what we're getting for Red Dragon, granted, it's, it's like a premiere. Um, so it would make sense that this would be, it's a, he's, Wrightsel is first playing with these sounds here. So it makes sense that it'd be a splashier, bigger score. Um, I'm really looking forward to what we're going to get by the end of the season when he's more comfortable with all of this. So uh, that's where I will leave it for now, I suppose. Thank you for your <laughs> indulgence. Wow. How much coffee have you, did you eat a lot of that chocolate dessert? No, no, I have not. I, I just like, I literally, I've got like six pages. No, no, Never no. Mind. I've got no, eight no, pages bravo, of notes I, and no, just no, the bravo, music. I was, I, was, I was literally riveted the whole discussion. And I read your but, piece, which is, by the way, an oh. excellent piece. Everyone go read it, soundonsite.org. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet. Um, it, it's very easy to just fall into a K-hole of this stuff, as I'm sure <laughs> you guys are are aware on so many of these elements the color coding the costuming the the shot selection the food design uh this is a show where everybody who's in charge of the different departments clearly loves what they do and they put a lot of um consideration into it so i i appreciate that it rewards um that attention to detail if you want to put it in at least for the score attention to detail oh that sounds a lot like a what? transition into the Devil in the Details, which is, of course, our second recurring segment for the podcast in which we talk about little things that stood out to us, be the visual or otherwise. And I'll just begin. Kate mentioned it, but didn't really mention it. Motherfucking Aaron Abrams and Scott Thompson. Oh yay, my God. Price and Seller, yay! I needed them back in my life. <laughs> How reasonably much? Competent, reasonably competent assistance. That's I, uh, special agent price. 
I got a thing. Is this a, you know, when they're pulling the thing off the eyeball, which is super gross. Apparently that's from the books. I don't it care. Is, it's yes. super gross. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, just the, like the, the, it's nice to get the gang back together. I mean, they didn't fit in it, the first part of the season. I get, you know, obviously, but it's, it's nice to get a little more levity that isn't just Chilton. Exactly. That goes, and that goes back to my comment from earlier about how wh- why I love this episode so much was it felt like my particular flavor of Hannibal, and those guys are just the sugar and spice. Hmm. All right, take it away, Les, with any little details for you. Uh, well, I was very, I have many, but this is going to be an absurdly long podcast, so I'll try to limit it. I love the decision to make Alana the head of the Baltimore Hospital for the Criminally Insane. So she's her, she's Hannibal's jailer now, not Chilton. And I think that's a really it, that's an interesting dynamic to explore. And it, it's just so much fun that opening scene where she sits with Hannibal, glo- uh, half gloats, half cautiously tiptoes around him. And then there's a, and the moment where she gets to kick Chilton out of her chair. So there's a little misdirected expectations, which I thought was a very nice. I thought that was a nice play. Question about that, um, because most of the people I've talked to seem to have your interpretation of that less. Um, so I'm curious, Sean, where you are. I assume that she's running it with him because there's another desk in that room and it has Chilton's like I think it was Chilton's like the the deer the stag head or whatever on it with the antlers um so that's how I read it but I there's absolutely no evidence to support that so I don't know why that's what I assumed what do you guys think I didn't see another desk I did see the the deer head in the back but yeah maybe they're co-writing it yeah I was I was hoping that I was hoping that you guys had caught that head because uh, you see, the way I interpret that was Alana's got the fancy office with all the books. She's got that that deer head in her office. She's wearing the impressive suits. I just like the implication that some of Han- that Hannibal ha- has rubbed off on her in more ways than one. Definitely. She looks fabulous. I love the short hair, too. That feels more in keeping with she feels low maintenance. Uh, you know, like she's not she feels no nonsense. So when she has like the long hair with like the very all the curls and everything that would take. I feel like she wouldn't have the patience for that. So, yeah, it, it, she's looking fabulous. Uh, tied to the tied to the careers, I actually have a question to pose. How was Jacket being head of the of the behavioral crimes unit? Didn't he take early retirement a few episodes ago? Is he the head? He's he's back in his office when Will brings in the file and says he has to go talk to Hannibal. Is that the same office or a different? It looked different to me, but it's been too, so long since I watched it, I couldn't really, you know, say for sure. It it looks a lot. It no, it looks almost exactly like it. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah, I don't know. Maybe we're just supposed to. Assume, yeah, maybe I. I guess we're supposed to just assume that him finally catching the Chesapeake Ripper, even though we didn't catch you, you surrendered is enough to like let him come back out of retirement or maybe he's coming out of retirement the same way will is to hunt the red dragon or the tooth fairy, I suppose as at this point. So I, I don't know that it just kind of bugged me a little bit. I was wondering if that bugged you guys. Because I felt like to me um, again, cause it's been a while. It looked like I thought I just, it looked like it was not as nice an office. I assumed he had been demoted, so it didn't bother me. But if he is in the exact same job, that does seem odd. Yeah, I would agree with that. Sean? Well, this is a job that can only be addressed by Cade Purnell. Where is she when we need her? <laughs> Purnell. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I don't know, actually. It it would make sense, I suppose, that Jack would 
be demoted, but I guess also just getting Hannibal, even though the circumstances were a little bit murky, and the fact that his, this has been three years, and the fact that Jack was really good at his job and knows it so well that he would be back to his same position. Okay. Again, it, it didn't. It wasn't a deal breaker. I did find it a little interesting when we did see him packing up his office at one point earlier in the season. Yeah, with the with Bella and everything. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're tossing these around. I'm assuming. So um, I guess what I'll start with. You already mentioned Chilton and that dialogue that with was just delightful, both with Hannibal and then also with Alana. Uh, when when Alana comes and kicks him out of his chair, out of her chair, I love that again with the oral fixation. Again, he can't help but put now her pens in his mouth and play with them. I thought that was a nice little bit of continuity. Um, and the other one I'll say before I toss it over to you, Sean, is um, that is one giant scrapbook of killing that Tallerhide has. It yeah. is thick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In the book and out. Yeah, in the book, not to spoil, he says that it's apparently an old ledger from a co- from some like printing company that he bought at auction. Nice. Uh, all right, just uh, a few things for me. Uh, Kate, you mentioned the dogs. I I feel like one of those dogs looks exactly like Winston, so we're led to believe that Winston's alive, right? Yeah, I th- Brian Fowler actually did say on his Twitter feed that is the same dog. Yeah, I I love the line. From, like we talked, sort of. Actually, I guess we haven't talked yet about uh, the four quadrant killer and everything. How meta that dialogue is. My bit of meta, meta dialogue that I loved is, "Don't worry about the dog." Like we can't, we can't help it, Brian Fuller. We love Winston. Winston needs to be okay. <laughs> uh, a couple other things we talked about, Alana. I think that we're immediately being led to believe that she is definitely on the chopping block this season, and that she's going to go. It's not just the emphasis of the reminder that Hannibal promised to kill her, but it's also that immediately after that, we see the glass shatter on her face, and then we move right to Dollarhide, which, given the fact that we've seen Will utilize the orderly to kill somebody while he's locked up, or to try to kill somebody, it's not unreasonable that, that Hannibal would be able to carry out that task via Dollarhide uh, to get his promise kept, I guess. Speaking of uh, getting back to Hannibal, we love and the return of characters. I there were a couple. We see the tat. We see tattlecrime.com with the headline "Kitchen Nightmare," and we have the and we have the mortician mentioning that an obnoxious flame-haired woman had to be ushered away from taking photos. So I'm guessing it's a pretty safe bet that we're going to see Freddie Lowndes before too long. Absolutely. Um, that was a fun. I didn't even really key into the whole kitchen nightmare thing, um, but that's. I like to think of that as a fun little maybe jab, but maybe just reference to everyone's favorite Fox reality show. When they should be loving So You Think You Can Dance. That's a conversation for another time. Anyways, um, the one I, next one I have is when we have Chilton and Hannibal enjoying their uh, sanguinat, uh, blood uh, chocolate thing. That one. Um, there's an empty stool in the center of the frame. Uh, with the the, and the the light is directly reflecting onto the because it's steel or something um, that the light is reflecting off of that which drew my attention to it. Um, so having Hannibal on one side, Chilton on the other side, and there's an empty chair there uh, or empty stool um, that made me think. Oh, is this highlighting that Will should be there? 
that Hannibal wants Will to be there, but he's not. Or is the third chair for Dollarhide, who they're conver- uh, who they're conversing about, and who belongs in in such an institution, perhaps, or at least that Hannibal would like to welcome to his table. So uh, the the station, the placement of the frame and like of the seat in the center of the frame and at the table, right in between Chilton and and Hannibal, I thought was was interesting. So I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts about that, or if again I just am having fun overanalyzing. No, I Hannibal I mean Hannibal we talked we touched on it at various points, but Hannibal's interesting in this episode because there's something so there's something oddly diminished about him, just like while he's in his captivity, he's sort of pulled back from the Hannibal that we used to know, but you can see the flickers of of the Hannibal that we do know coming out always when he's eat, when he appears to be eating something, like when he has the glass of wine with Alana or when he's sitting and having the dinner with Chil- having the dessert with Chilton that there's just the general Hannibal is trying to get out and get back to what he used to be he's just going back to my metaphor about Dolorhide being coiled has essentially treated very far into himself but he's starting to poke his he's starting to poke his head out sniffing around uh, also during that Hannibal Chilton scene there's this moment where it's, I mean, it's not quite Brian Fuller and Steve Lightfoot writing about their own show, but it is Brian Fuller and Steve Lightfoot writing about their own show when Chilton tells Hannibal uh, about the Red Dragon that he has, quote, a much broader demographic than you do, you with your fancy illusions, your fussy aesthetics, you will always have niche appeal, but this fellow, there is something so universal about what he does. That's, that's, that's definitely meta-commentary right there. <laughs> yep. Two other things really quickly that I had. Uh when we see from outside the the motel that Will is at, it very reminiscent of Bates Motel, just in the the way that that uh sign for the motel is designed. And then finally my last thing was oh, just cuz we talk about the dialogue on this sometimes and how Fuller and, and Lightfoot writes that and how we mentioned that they avoid sometimes pronouns or, or proper subjects uh, and, and just begin sentences with adjectives um it's not that but this is a moment where uh fuller and lightfoot are adapting dialogue directly from red dragon in will and jack's conversation when jack's trying to convince him to to get on board and will says you you got to to talk about it which is again quote word for word from the book but that was the one instance in which i felt like that kind of took me out of it that that was being you know, too faithful to the the source material because it didn't sound like wording that Will would say. It, it was too like colloquial for him. But that's it for my yeah. Details. That's yeah, yeah. And that's sort of a problem that I that was again one of the problems I had in the first half of the season, knowing some things like the bit where Ver, where Verger tells Posse that he needs to get the get the the fingerprint, which doesn't make any logical sense that he needs the thumbprint with all the information, that's a detail that comes straight out of the books, and that really took me out of that scene for that to be there. But in this instance, I don't think it bothered me so much because, again, I spent so much of this episode just being captivated by Hannibal doing pretty much all of the things that Hannibal does well, again, in the space of an episode. Hmm. Um, oh, and there's... Uh, Oh, sorry, I do have one last detail that I did want to Go mention. I was, wa- I, was watching this, I was watching really closely, and I like this fact that you can 
can both see a scar on Hannibal's cheek left over from the events of the previous episodes. And also, if you look closely enough on the HD versions, you can see faint hairline scars on Will from where Hannibal took the saw to his head. And that's just, there's subtle little details, which again is what we're discussing, what is the bread and butter of this segment. But I just love the fact the show is so aware of the damage that both of these men have under, that everyone really has undergone as a result of the various events. And it can give you those little visual cues for it. And then, of course, the much broader metaphorical cues. Great, uh, great attention to detail there from the the show and also for noticing it because I did not pause and look for that, but I should have. So thank you last for that. Um, I was told you were told I was coming. Were you not told? Did not work for me. <laughs> no. <laughs> Which made me sad. Didn't quite land. But I did really like the visual of Dollarhide with the goggles. I thought that was really just a really striking visual. I thought that was effective. I also really liked the visual of um, Will sort of suspended in the middle of a spiral of family photos at the motel. I thought that was a really neat way to convey sort of this notion of him drowning in that, but also it's not necessarily drowning. It's just, it's, he's stuck in the middle of that and there's all these underneath him that he's too late for, but maybe he can save the families that are yet to be victims that are uh, on top of him. All right. So with that, is there anything else pressing because we are running quite long? Kate does need to go to sleep at some point in her life uh, that we have not <laughs> talked about yet that either of you would like to bring up. I don't know. I mean, I mean, we, I, I suppose just to quickly say we kept alluding to it and it's obvious in some shots, but Neil Marshall di- directed the hell out of this episode. Everything from the whole lead sequence to, to the dollar hot to dollar hide trying to become the dragon to the framing of Hannibal's prison cell. This was just an absolutely gorgeous episode of television and just stunningly executed in every way. Um, the last thing I'll mention is the respect paid by um, Antosca and Fuller and Lightfoot and Marshall and the performers to the topic of rape and sexual assault. The way that they handle that ex- aspect, that element of the Tooth Fairy's crimes without diminishing it, without whitewashing it, or uh, I guess sanitizing it is the best term, um, while not lingering in it and not defining the tooth fairy or his victims through that specific lens. I, I was, I thought it was very respectful of their audience and very, um, very well handled. So yeah. tip of the hat. And just touching on that, my, my final comments on the episode, um, were that I honestly, I've never been more disturbed watching an episode of, of Hannibal than I was while watching this. And uh, the way wow. that they handle that has, yeah, and uh, has to do with that because, you know, less is more in that circumstance. But it's also the way that we saw Will enact the killings, especially of the children, and how fully he was immersed into that. You know, the, looking back, the episode with Georgia under the bed and all of that was very scary and like a, a traditional horror sense. But I've never been so psychologically disturbed than I was while watching Will become Dollar Hyde in those moments. That's how you know they're doing their job, I suppose. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> no, this this got really this episode got really dark, really creepy, really psychological, and oddly funny in all the best ways that Hannibal is. And I'm 
there really just aren't words for how excited I am to see the way these next few episodes play out and they actually get to tell the Red Dragon story because Fuller has said he that this is one of the things he's been most excited to tackle and frankly I just can't wait to see. Yeah, and I think pretty much everybody at this point agrees and uh, that's where we'll end it this week and we'll look forward to the continuation of this and the, the next five episodes. Uh, once again, thank you to, to Les Chapel for coming on and talking with us. Is there anything that you wanted to plug to listeners? Anything going on online? Uh, not really. It's well, kind of a quiet period, but I'm usually popping up, writing stuff at the AV Club, writing stuff on Sound on Site, just finishing up my Twin Peaks coverage in com- in collusion with Jake Petra. And I guess you can follow me on Twitter at lessismore909 for all my latest updates. I'm going to be so sad when you're out of Twin Peaks episodes to review, Les. I I know I'm really upset too, but uh, too that. But the good news is Jake and I are gonna we're gonna make the fi- we're gonna make the finale stick. Well, there's we have a, nice. we both have many many thoughts. We're gonna yeah we, hell we may even get our own podcast out of just talking about the finale uh-huh. because we both have so many thoughts. Looking forward to it. Uh, Kate, anything going on that you'd like to mention to listeners? Well, I've already mentioned you can find my handle reviews up at soundonsite.org as well as my write-up uh, write-ups of the score, which each have their own post, with the exception of episode four, uh, which that I didn't have enough to make its own post that week. It was like delightful. It was a lot less work, um, <laughs> but uh, I didn't have a thousand words about the music to write that week. It was great. Um, so I assume I will be continuing that through the rest of the season, um, unless all of a sudden right decides to phone it in, which I don't anticipate. Um, you can find again all of that at soundsite.org. You can find my weekly TV podcast over there, The Televerse, uh, where we look at the rest of TV. You can uh, hit me up on Twitter at The Televerse. I love talking about this stuff with you guys. Uh, please send me gifts. Please send me fan art. Please send me uh, all the different fun fanable stuff that's out there. The crossover, uh, cross universe stuff is delightful. I, I don't think I have time to read fanfic, but pretty much anything else please send my way. It's delightful. Um, and then of course I also write at the AV club. I, again, like Les said, it's, it's a quiet period for us right now, but you can find our reviews from uh, earlier in the year over there. And, uh, also you can, you can hear me this week. If, if this isn't enough Hannibal talk, you can hear me talk just as long about mostly completely different things over on eat the Rootcast this week. So, uh, which is of course where we, we love that podcast. They're, they're friends of ours. And, uh, so it's always a pleasure to talk with them. So go check that out at eat the Rootcast. I assume.com just Google them. They'll come up. <laughs> I'm glad that, uh, that it's completely different things. I like being compliments to one another and offering listeners different things. Um, and of course you can find my weekly written reviews of Hannibal over at tvovermind.com. I actually haven't mentioned this this season. I also do, if any listeners are also watch film a bunch, I do, uh, like once a month, every three weeks, I guess, uh, film reviews for my, my, one of my local papers, but they have a website, uh, vcreporter.com. I just reviewed Southpaw, which should come out on Thursday, which this podcast will be out before then. So if you're interested in any of that, you can find some of my stuff there as well. And again, and as a reminder, if you'd like to be entered into the drawing to win a copy of The Art of Making Hannibal, uh, just let us know in, either through email, this is our design 666 at gmail.com, uh, or uh, contact either Kate or myself on Twitter, or leave a post over at soundonsite.org. Uh, please be sure to mention specifically that you are uh, wishing to enter into the giveaway and that you include one of the, the pictures that we talked about, because we like cool stuff. But Kate and I will be back again next week to talk about season three episode nine and the woman clothed 
with sun. And that's it for this week. Thank you again, listeners, for tuning in. This has been another episode of This Is Our Design.